Good job, kids. Sounded great. We have, uh, as a church, been working our way through the life of Jesus, uh, really hoping to, to meet Jesus, and we've been doing that by looking at the Gospel of Luke. Luke is one of four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, and actually, uh, we are nearing its end. We are in the last week of Jesus' life. It's probably Tuesday. Uh, and Jesus is in Jerusalem. And, and what we've seen over the past couple of Sundays is that Jesus is making a royal mess. He's teaching, He's preaching, and He's making a lot of people angry. Uh, particularly the, uh, the religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the elders... And the point that I really wanted to make last week, and I don't know if it came across or not, but I want to revisit it again, uh, is that if you if you honestly look at Jesus, just read Him as, as He is portrayed here in the pages of the Bible, you will find that Jesus is a deeply unsettling person. Here's what I, here's what I mean by that. That Jesus, we, we typically think of Jesus as comforter. Uh, and he is that. Jesus does bring comfort. But I think sometimes we can uh, almost treat Jesus like a, a pacifier or a, a teddy bear. That when things go wrong or when things are rough, I just can snuggle up to my Jesus and everything's going to be okay. But that's not really the complete picture of who Jesus is. And, and what we see Jesus doing here is... Uh, Jesus is a challenger. Jesus, Jesus is a comforter, but He's also a confronter. In fact, I would even argue that, that you really can't know Jesus as comforter unless you are first confronted by Him. Unless He first challenges you. Uh, so let me, uh, let me illustrate, and I'm going to illustrate using a story that comes earlier in the Gospel. In Luke chapter 8... Uh, Jesus and his friends, uh, those who are following him, we call them disciples, they get into a boat and are crossing over the Sea of Galilee. Now you need to know that Jesus' friends are fishermen. They know their way around a boat. They know their way around the water. Uh, And so Jesus heads up into the front of the boat and he takes a nap. Now some of you need to hear that part right there. Jesus takes a nap. It's okay. Right? Jesus, for those of you who are like super active, it's unholy to take a nap. Don't be holier than Jesus. Jesus took a nap. Okay? Um, so Jesus goes into the boat, goes up to the front of the boat, and he lays down for a nap. And while he is sleeping, a huge storm blows up. Now remember, these are, these are sailors, these are fishermen. They know a thing or two about handling themselves on the water, but they are in sheer panic. Their boat is being filled with water. They have totally lost control. Uh, and so they run to Jesus, and they wake Him up, and Jesus stands up, and He looks at the storm, and He says, Hush! And then He looks at the water, and He says, Stop! And you know what happens? The storm hushes and the waves stop instantly. Now, how do you think they responded to that? 
Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate it. You can go on back and take a nap. We got it from here. No. Luke says they were afraid. And rightly so. If you saw a man talk to a storm and tell it to stop, and it did, well, that would be unsettling, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be really good, but it would also be really terrifying. Because here's, here's this good person, but he is not in your control. And that's the terrifying part. And that's what's happening as Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem, and it's what makes the, the religious leaders so angry, is they cannot get around Jesus. They hate Him, they want Him to go away, they want to kill Him, because they cannot control Him. He is a threat to them. Because anyone this powerful is threatening. He is unsettling. They want Him dead because He challenges their lust for money and power. And He challenges the way that they use God's name to cover it all up. So let's see what happens next as Jesus continues to challenge, continues to confront these leaders. We're going to start reading in Luke chapter 20. I'm going to pick up in verse 19. And I'm just going to actually read, just going to focus on uh, Luke 20, 19 through 26. Luke 20, 19 through 26. So you can ignore the part that says 21. Luke writes, The scribes and the chief priest sought to lay hands on him that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is God's holy and infallible word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Let's pray and ask him to do just that. Heavenly Father, would you take your word and would you write it on our hearts? Would you open our eyes to see? Would you open our ears to hear? And would you soften our hearts to believe? And would you transform us from the inside out? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, the, the, the passage is pretty simple. Just two 
Uh, we're just going to look at it in two episodes. First, we're going to see the trap that they try to lay for Jesus. And then we're going we're to look at Jesus' response, Jesus' answer to that trap. Uh, and, and what we saw last week is that uh, these religious leaders, first, when they, when they wanted to challenge Jesus, they tried the, the direct approach, right? They come right to Him and they say, hey, who do you think you are? And what Jesus does is He shuts them down. And they realize they can't, they can't get at Jesus that way. And so what they do is they now try the back door. Right? They, they, they tried to come through the front door. That didn't work. And so now they try to come through the back door. Right? He made us look like fools. So, so let's send some spies and see if we can trap him in his words. See if we can get him, some, get him to say something that will get him in trouble with the Romans. That's, that's how we're going to get Jesus. And the first thing I want you to notice, again, these are, these are religious leaders. Uh, these are the priests whom you would go to to gain access to God. These are the elders and the scribes. They knew the Bible. They would quote the Bible. They would teach the Bible. And yet, you can see in their strategy what their hearts are really like. How their, how their ploy, their plan reveals their hearts. Uh, they were supposed to represent God, and yet they were probably the ones furthest from God. As the old saying goes, all that, all that glitters is not gold. These men are hypocrites and liars. And we should probably define that word hypocrite, because it gets tossed around a bunch. And so uh, Boston College professor Peter Kreeft, he says this, Hypocrisy is not the failure to practice what you preach. Hypocrisy, we, we commonly define it as the failure to practice what, you know, if you don't practice what you preach, we call you a hypocrite. But that's, that's actually not what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is not the failure to practice what you preach, but the failure to believe it. To say you believe one thing, but you actually believe another. The American Heritage Dictionary puts it this way. Hypocrisy is the practice of professing beliefs, feelings, or virtues that one does not actually hold or possess. It is falseness. So it's not... It's not, live, it's not the failure to live up to what you believe. It's not being inconsistent in what you believe. In that regard, we're, we're all in that category. Right? Every person who claims to know Jesus truly would at the same time admit that they are a failure. That they are inconsistent in what they believe. And that's why they need Jesus. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is putting on a show that says, I believe this, when in reality you believe something altogether different. You see it in the way that these spies approach Jesus. They say things about Jesus that are true. Do you look at uh, verse 20? Of course, we're, uh, we're told that they pretended to be sincere, so we know right up front what their motives are. They're not actually sincere. Their goal is to try to catch him, get him to say something. But they say, in verse 21, they say true things. They say, Teacher, we know that you speak 
and teach rightly. You show no partiality. It means Jesus doesn't favor the powerful and He doesn't favor the, the weak. Uh, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, right? Uh, Jesus is not doing favors for those who are in power. He shows no favoritism. And He truly teaches the way of God. He shows people what it means to draw near to God. Now, everything they said is true. The problem is not with their words, but with their hearts. That's where the hypocrisy is. They are hypocrites because they do not believe what they are actually saying. They are saying true things, but they don't actually believe them. In other places, Jesus calls the Pharisees, other religious leaders, He calls them hypocrites because they want people to think that they love God by making long and loud prayers, by by taking prominent positions. They want people to think they love God. But in reality, they don't. Really, they want people to love them. Right? That's a hypocrite. And so these men are pretending to be sincere, but they don't actually believe what they say. I love uh, love how Psalm 55, 21 puts it. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. Now what this tells us is that people can speak truth even when they don't believe truth. People can know and speak truth even when they don't believe it. Which means we have to be on guard against the hypocrisy of our own hearts. Right? We can we can be busy with lots of religious activity. These these men certainly were. Right? They were working in the temple, they were, they were reading the Bible, they were teaching people the Bible. There was lots of religious activity. They had lots of religious knowledge. Uh, these spies speak truth, and yet they're far from God. We can be religiously busy, we can speak religious, but actually not be, be close to God at all. How do we avoid that? How do we avoid being falsely religious people? How do we, how do we pursue and, and go after the hypocrisy in our own hearts? We have to ask the Holy Spirit. We have to ask God to reveal that to us. Right? When we do some good thing or when we in, engage in some kind of ministry, we need to be in the practice of asking God, why am I doing this? What is my, what is my drive? What goal am I pursuing? Is it the love of other people? Do I really just want people to think that I'm a good person when in reality I am not? That's how we begin to get on guard against the hypocrisy of our own hearts. We, don't, we want to be people of integrity, right? And integrity means wholeness. Uh, it means undivided. Uh, we ought to be people who are not divided in our loyalties, but integral, integrated. We are people of integrity, unlike these religious leaders, unlike these spies. So, these guys ask Jesus a question that uh, they hope, or they think, is bound to get him into trouble. They ask him in verse 22, uh, Is it lawful for us to pay tribute 
to Caesar or not. Now, now this was a, a hot-button issue in Jesus' day. Like most political things, it was also deeply emotional. Rome, Caesar, was in charge of Palestine, of Israel, of the Jews. And like most occupied people, they did not like it. They wanted the Romans gone. They wanted their own king ruling over them. And so uh, having to pay Caesar's tax was a, was a deeply emotional reminder of their subjection to Caesar. And so when these guys ask, hey, is it lawful to pay this tax or not? A, they, they really don't care. Remember, they're trying to get Jesus trapped. Uh, what, what they're trying to do is, is, is get Jesus stuck between an either-or, right? Because if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay tribute to Caesar. Excuse me, if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay the tax. We shouldn't pay tribute to Caesar. Then the Romans will come and get Jesus, right? They'll, they'll charge Jesus with leading a rebellion and they'll execute him. Which would be great. That's what the leaders want, right? So if Jesus says, no, Rome will get him. If Jesus says, yes, we should pay the tax, then the people will be mad at him. Because here Jesus is propping up a, a false king in Caesar. Right? And so then, then the zealots will take over and maybe they'll, they'll throw Jesus out of town. Maybe they'll even throw him out of town and stone him or something. But either way, th- then Jesus will be out of the way. So whether we get Rome on him or we get the people on him, if we can just get Jesus to answer this question, we put him between a rock and a hard place, we've got him. He's got to say yes or no. And then we have Jesus' response. And what Jesus does is he answers an either-or question with a both-and answer. I love Jesus. Alright? I love either-or. Like, I I want things simple. I want things in nice, neat, tidy categories. Right? Keep my options simple. So, I I like either-or. Jesus says both. Should Should we pay it or not? Jesus says yes. Right? Um, Look at what he does. He he pulls out the coin. First it says he perceives their craftiness. Right? He knows what they're up to. uh, And so he doesn't allow them to spring the trap. But he he has them pull out a coin. He actually springs the trap on them. Pull out a coin. Whose face is on it? They say, well, Caesar. It's his face. His writing's on it. Now, even, even the coin itself, right, every, every Roman coin really, I mean, it's true of our coins, right? If you pull out one of our coins, you'll see face and writing stamped on it, right? Currency has been stamped forever, okay? Uh, and on a Roman coin, you would have had Caesar's face and you would have had some writing. Now, now the Jews did not put any faces on their coins, nor did they put, uh, the, the, the Roman coin would have deified Caesar, right? It would have referred to Caesar as a god. Now that would have been deeply offensive to the Jews. Oddly enough, it didn't stop them from using the money. But, right? Uh, so even the coin itself would have been deeply offensive to, uh, to the Jews because it would have deified Caesar. would have had language on there that said Caesar was God. But Jesus says, so, so whose writing is on it? Who's, whose image is on it? 
And, and they say, well, Caesar's. And then Jesus says, okay, well then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now here's what's interesting about that response. Jesus, Jesus says that civil government is legitimate. He says, listen, uh, you live under Caesar's rule. You use Caesar's roads. You're defended by Caesar's armies. So, yeah, pay tribute to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In, in one half sentence, Jesus says that there is legitimate government, and legitimate government belongs to be followed. I mean, uh, deserves to be followed. Uh, Paul says much the same in Romans 13, 1 through 7, where he says we should submit to the governing authorities. Those same governing authorities, by the way, would later execute Paul and would imprison Christians. But Paul says that, look, if you're following Jesus, you can submit to the local, uh, you can submit to the government. Government has legitimate authority. But then Jesus takes it a step further. After he says, give to Caesar what bears his image, he then says, give to God what belongs to God. Give to God what bears His image. Did you catch what Jesus did? What is, that, what is it that bears God's image? What is it that belongs to God? Everything. What is it that bears God's image? Let's go to Genesis 1. I'll read it. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. So what is stamped with God's image like a coin? Humanity. What is it that belongs to God? Humanity. And humanity owes everything to God. So Jesus can say, sure, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But the real issue is you. The real issue is, are you willing to give yourself to God? Are you willing to give tribute to the one who owns you? That's what Jesus is doing. He's driving them to the heart of the matter. Jesus is saying we have an obligation, yes, to king and country, but really we have an obligation beyond king and country. That we don't actually belong to our country, we belong to God Himself. We are made in His image. So we render ultimate loyalty not to our country, but to Him. Which, by the way... If you look at, at all the major world religions, I've said this before, but I think it's fascinating. Every major world religion is still primarily located where it started. Islam started in the Middle East and the heaviest concentration of its population is in the Middle East. Buddhism started in the Far East. Its heaviest concentration still in the Far East. Hinduism, same. Christianity alone has migrated around the world. Its center always moving. Why? 
Because it is a kingdom that is not tied to any national boundaries. It is not tied to any ruling class of any nation anywhere. In fact, it is a kingdom made up of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Right? Jesus is Lord of all, not just of some. And so, all of life belongs to God, therefore all of life should be rendered back to God. That's what Jesus does in one sentence, right? He turns it on its head. Now, in pointing out that deeper reality, that we are all made in the image of God and therefore we owe our loyalty to God, He also points out a problem that we have. I don't know if you feel it, I feel it. I don't like to be ruled. I want to be loyal to me and to me alone. I will have no king over me. That's what this image of God says, right? That's what our first parents said in the garden. When Eve looked at the tree and she took the fruit and she ate it. She said, no, I don't want God to rule over me. I think we can rule over ourselves. And that project has repeated itself in misery and sin throughout the ages. War, poverty, hostility. We don't like to be ruled by another. And our, and our base nature wants to, to shake our fist at the God whose image we bear. So while we still bear His image, we are broken and fallen. So what happens? How do we escape that deeper problem, that deeper reality, that though we bear God's image and we owe all our loyalty to Him, yet we do not give it. How can we be made right with God? Well, I want to turn to Colossians. Colossians 1.15 says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then it says this, He is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. What's Paul saying? That that we, the, the broken and marred image of God, refuse to give God our loyalty. But then another image of God comes along, and He bears it truly. He is truly what every human was meant to be. He truly renders service to God when no one else will. And not only does He do that, but as He renders service to God, He brings all the rebels home. He makes peace between God and man. And He does so through His death on the cross. And so, the way... For broken and marred images of God who refuse to follow Him, the way for us to be made right is to come to Him through Jesus, the true image of God. Miss, uh, Miss Betty reminded me this morning that uh, every, every good sermon challenges the comfortable 
let me, let me get it right. Every good sermon uh, afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. That's what Jesus did. That's what he's doing right here in this passage. His aim is to afflict the comfortable. That they would see their deep need of him. And then for those who see their need, who see their affliction, he comforts them. He brings them to himself. So I invite you this morning, come to Jesus, the true man, the true image of God. And then you will rightly render to God what belongs to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are, we are marked by You. We bear Your stamp. We bear Your image, Lord God. And yet we are hypocrites. We are those of divided loyalties. We are, we are not whole people. But deep down, we are liars. So God, I pray this morning You would afflict us. That you, Lord Jesus, just like you do uh, over and over again, every time you have a hard word, your aim is is to move us out of that comfortable, apathetic spot. That place where we think everything's okay. Oh Lord Jesus, would you show us that everything is not okay. We are not okay. We need you. We need you to make right what we have made wrong. And it's there too, Jesus, that we need your comfort. Would you comfort us in our affliction? Would you show us that you are the true image of God, the true image bearer who lifts us up and restores us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.